Section 23 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The truth is that the clown's absurd story, with a still more ridiculous application, made me sick at heart a second time. It was not because I thought my illustrious friend was the devil, or that I took a fool's idle tale as a counterbalance to divine revelation that had assured me of my justification in the sight of God before the existence of time. But in short, it gave me a view of my own state, at which I shuddered, as indeed I now always did when the image of my devoted friend and ruler presented itself to my mind. I often communed with my heart on this, and wondered how a connection that had the well-being of mankind solely in view could be productive of fruits so bitter. I then went to try my works by the Savior's golden rule, as my servant had put it into my head to do. And behold, not one of them could stand the test. I had shed blood on the ground on which I could not admit that any man had a right to shed mine. And I began to doubt the motives of my adviser once more. Not that they were intentionally bad, but that his was some great mind led astray by enthusiasm or some overpowering passion. He seemed to comprehend every one of these motions of my heart, for his manner towards me altered every day. It first became anything but agreeable, then supercilious, and finally intolerable, so that I resolved to shake him off, cost what it would, even though I should be reduced to beg my bread in a foreign land. To do it at home was impossible, as he held my life in his hands, to sell it whenever he had a mind, and besides, his ascendancy over me was as complete as that of a huntsman over his dogs. I was even so weak as, the next time I met with him, to look steadfastly at his foot, to see if it was not cloven into two hooves. It was the foot of a gentleman in every respect, so far as appearances went, but the form of his counsels was somewhat equivocal, and if not double, they were amazingly crooked. But if I had taken my measures to abscond and fly from my native place, in order to free myself of this tormenting, intolerable and bloody reformer, he had likewise taken his to expel me, or throw me into the hands of justice. It seems that, about this time, I was haunted by some spies connected with my late father and brother, of whom the mistress of the former was one. My brother's death had been witnessed by two individuals. Indeed, 
I always had an impression that it was witnessed by more than one, having some faint recollection of hearing voices and challenges close beside me. And this woman had searched about until she found these people. But as I shrewdly suspected, not without the assistance of the only person in my secret. My own warm and devoted friend. I say this because I found that he had them concealed in the neighborhood, and then he took me again and again where I was fully exposed to their view, without being aware. One time in particular, on pretense of gratifying my revenge on that base woman, he knew so well where she lay concealed that he led me to her and left me to the mercy of two viragos who had very nigh taken my life. My time of residence at Doll Castle was wearing to a crisis. I could no longer live with my tyrant, who haunted me like my shadow, and besides, it seems there were proofs of murder leaning against me from all quarters. Of part of these, I deemed myself quite free, but the world deemed otherwise, and how the matter would have gone, God only knows. For the case never having undergone a judicial trial, I do not. It perhaps, however, behooves me here to relate all that I know of it, and it is simply this. On the 1st of June, 1712, well may I remember the day, I was sitting locked in my secret chamber, in a state of the utmost despondency, revolving in my mind what I ought to do to be free of my persecutors, and wishing myself a worm or a moth that I might be crushed and at rest. When behold, Samuel entered, with eyes like to start out of his head, exclaiming, For God's sake, master, fly and hide yourself! For your mother's found, and as sure as you're a living soul, the blame gonna fall on you. My mother found, said I, and pray, where has she been all this while? In the meantime, I was terribly discomposed at the thoughts of her return. Been, sir, been? Why, she has been where you patter, it seems, lying buried in the sands of the Lynn. I can tell you, ye will see her a frightsome figure, sick as I never wish to see again. And the young lady is found too, sir. And it is said the devil, I beg your pardon, sir, your friend, I mean, it is said your friend has made the discovery and the folk are away to raise officers, and they will be here in an hour or two at the farthest, sir, and say ye hey not a minute to lose, for there's proof, sir, strong proof, and sworn proof, that ye were last seen with them baith. Say, unless ye can gie the better an account, of bath yourself and them either hide or flee for your bare life. I will neither hide nor fly, said I, for I am as guiltless of the blood of these women as the child unborn. The country does not think say, so, master, and I can assure you that, should evidence fail, 
you run a risk of being torn limb for limb. They are bringing the corpse here. To gar ye touch them baith afore witnesses, and plenty o' witnesses there will be. They shall not bring them here, cried I, shocked beyond measure at the experiment about to be made. Go instantly, and debar them from entering my gate with their bloated and mangled carcasses. The body of your own mother, sir, said the fellow emphatically. I was in terrible agitation, and being driven to my wit's end, I got up and strode furiously round and round the room. Samuel wits not what to do, but I saw by his staring he deemed me doubly guilty. A tap came to the chamber door. We both started like guilty creatures, and as for Samuel, his hairs stood all on end with alarm so that, when I motioned to him, he could scarcely advance to open the door. He did so at length, and who should enter but my illustrious friend, manifestly in the utmost state of alarm. The moment that Samuel admitted him, the former made his escape by the prince's side as he entered, seemingly in a state of distraction. I was little better when I saw this dreaded personage enter my chamber, which he had never before attempted, and being unable to ask his errand, I suppose I stood and gazed on him like a statue. I come with sad and tormenting tidings to you, my beloved and ungrateful friend, said he, but having only a minute left to save your life, I have come to attempt it. There is a mob coming towards you with two dead bodies, which will place you in circumstances disagreeable enough. But that is not the worst, for of that you may be able to clear yourself. At this moment, there is a party of officers with the judiciary warrant from Edinburgh surrounding the house and about to begin the search of it for you. If you fall into their hands, you are inevitably lost, for I have been making earnest inquiries and find that everything is in train for your ruin. Aye, and who has been the cause of all this, said I, with great bitterness. But he stopped me short, adding, There is no time for such reflections at present. I gave my word of honor that your life should be safe from the hand of man. So it shall, if the power remain with me to save it. I am come to redeem my pledge, and to save your life by the sacrifice of my own. Here, not one word of expostulation. Change habits with me, and you may then pass by the officers and guards, and even through the approaching mob, with the most perfect temerity. There is a virtue in this garb, and instead of offering to detain you, they shall pay you obeisance. Make haste, and leave this place for the present, flying where you best may, and if I escape from these dangers that surround me, I will endeavor to find you out, and bring you what intelligence I am able. I put on his green frock coat, buff belt, 
and a sort of a turban that he always wore on his head, somewhat resembling a bishop's mitre. He drew his hand thrice across my face, and I withdrew as he continued to urge me. My hall door and postern gate were both strongly guarded, and there were sundry armed people within, searching the closets. But all of them made way for me, and lifted their caps as I passed by them. Only one superior officer accosted me, asking if I had seen the culprit. I knew not what answer to make, but chanced to say, with great truth and propriety, He is safe enough. The man beckoned with a smile, as much as to say, Thank you, sir, that is quite sufficient, and I walked deliberately away. I had not well left the gate till, hearing a great noise coming from the deep glen towards the east, I turned that way, deeming myself quite secure in this my new disguise, to see what it was, and if it matters were as had been described to me. There I met a great mob, sure enough, coming with two dead bodies stretched on boards, and decently covered with white sheets. I would fain have examined their appearance, had I not perceived the apparent fury in the looks of the men, and judged from that how much more safe it was for me not to intermeddle in the affray. I could not tell how it was, but I felt a strange and unwanted delight in viewing this scene, and a certain pride of heart in being supposed a perpetrator of the unnatural crimes laid to my charge. This was a feeling quite new to me, and if there were virtues in the robes of the illustrious foreigner, who had without all dispute preserved my life at this time, I say, if there was any inherent virtue in these robes of his, as he had suggested, this was one of their effects that they turned my heart towards that which was evil, horrible, and disgustful. I mixed with the mob to hear what they were saying. Every tongue was engaged in loading me with the most opprobrious epithets. One called me a monster of nature, another an incarnate devil, and another a creature made to be cursed in time and eternity. I retired from them and winded my way southwards, comforting myself with the assurance that so mankind had used and persecuted the greatest fathers and apostles of the Christian church, and that their vile opprobrium could not alter the counsels of heaven concerning me. On going over that rising ground called Dorrington Moor, I could not help turning round and taking a look of Dahl Castle. I had little doubt that it would be my last look, and nearly as little ambition that it should not. I thought how high my hopes of happiness and advancement had been on entering that mansion, and taking possession of its rich and extensive domains, and how miserably I had been disappointed. On the contrary, I had experienced nothing but chagrin 
disgust and terror. And I now consoled myself with the hope that I should henceforth shake myself free of the chains of my great tormentor. And for that privilege was I willing to encounter any earthly distress. I could not help perceiving that I was now on a path which was likely to lead me into a species of distress hitherto unknown, and hardly dreamed of by me, and that was total destitution. For all the riches I had been possessed of a few hours previous to this, I found that here I was turned out of my lordly possessions without a single merc, or the power of lifting and commanding the smallest sum without being thereby discovered and seized. Had it been possible for me to have escaped in my own clothes, I had a considerable sum secreted in these. But by the sudden change, I was left without a coin for present necessity. But I had hope in heaven, knowing that the just man would not be left destitute, and that, though many troubles surrounded him, he would at last be set free from them all. I was possessed of strong and brilliant parts, and a liberal education, and, though I had somehow unaccountably suffered my theological qualifications to fall into desitude, since my acquaintance with the oblest and most rigid of all theologians, I had nevertheless hopes that, by preaching up redemption by grace, preordination, and eternal purpose, I should yet be enabled to benefit mankind in some country and rise to high distinction. These were some of the thoughts by which I consoled myself as I posted on my way southwards, avoiding the towns and villages, and falling into the crossways that led from each of the great roads, passing east and west to another. I lodged the first night in the house of a country weaver, into which I stepped at a late hour, quite overcome with hunger and fatigue, having traveled not less than thirty miles from my late home. The man received me ungraciously, telling me of a gentleman's house at no great distance, and of an inn a little farther away. But I said, I delighted more in the society of a man like him than that of any gentleman of the land. For my concerns were with the poor of this world, it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The weaver's wife, who sat with a child on her knee, and had not hitherto opened her mouth, hearing me speak in that serious and religious style, stirred up the fire with her one hand, then, drawing a chair near it, she said, Come away, honest lad, in by here. Sin it be say that ye belang to him, why give us that we hay? It is but right that you should share a part. You are a stranger, it is true. But them that when entertained a stranger will never entertain an angel unawares. I never was apt to be taken with the simplicity of nature. 
In general, I despised it. But owing to my circumstances at the time, I was deeply affected by the manner of this poor woman's welcome. The weaver continued in a churlish mood throughout the evening, apparently dissatisfied with what his wife had done in entertaining me, and spoke to her in a manner so crusty that I thought proper to rebuke him, for the woman was calmly in her person and virtuous in her conversation. But the weaver, her husband, was large of make, ill-favored and pestilent. Therefore did I take him severely to task for the tenor of his conduct. But the man was forward, and answered me rudely with sneering and derision, and, in the height of his caprice, he said to his wife, One fox has seen keen of a chance of entertaining angels, good wife. It would may better be worth their while to take tent what kind of angels they are. It won no wonder me vera muckle and ye had entertained your friend the deal the night, for all thought all fond and saw a reek and a brimstain about him. He's nane of the best of angels, and fox win a hay muckle credit by entertaining him. Certainly, in the assured state I was in, I had as little reason to be alarmed at mention being made of the devil as any person on earth. Of late, however, I felt that the reverse was the case, and that any allusion to my great enemy moved me exceedingly. The weaver's speech had such an effect on me that both he and his wife were alarmed at my looks. The latter thought I was angry, and chided her husband gently for his rudeness. But the weaver himself rather seemed to be confirmed in his opinion that I was the devil, for he looked round like a startled roe buck, and immediately betook him to the family Bible. I know not whether it was on purpose to prove my identity or not, but I think he was going to desire me either to read a certain portion of scripture that he had sought out, or to make family worship, had not the conversation at that instant taken another turn. For the weaver, not knowing how to address me, abruptly asked my name, as he was about to put the Bible into my hands. Never having considered myself in the light of a male factor, but rather as a champion in the cause of truth, and finding myself perfectly safe under my disguise, I had never once thought of the utility of changing my name. And when the man asked me, I hesitated, but being compelled to say something, I said my name was Colwain. The man stared at me, and then at his wife with a look that spoke of knowledge of something alarming or mysterious. Ha! Cowain, said he. That's most extraordinaire, not Cowain, I hope. No, Cowain is my surname, said I. But why not Cowain, there being so little difference in the sound? I was feared ye might be that rarich that the deal has ta'en the possession o' and ain't get him on to kill baith 
his father and his mother, his only brother and his sweetheart, said he. And to say the truth, I'm no that sure about you yet, for I see your gone wee arms on ye. Not I, honest man, said I. I carry no arms. A man conscious of his innocence and uprightness of heart needs not to carry arms in his defense now. Ay, ay, maester, said he. And pray what div ye this bit whittle stray that's appearing here. With that, he pointed to something on the inside of the breast of my frock coat. I looked at it, and there certainly was the gilded half of a poignard, the same weapon I had seen and handled before, and which I knew my illustrious companion carried about with him. But till that moment I knew not that I was in possession of it. I drew it out. A more dangerous or insidious-looking weapon could not be conceived. The weaver and his wife were both frightened, the latter in particular, and she being my friend, and I dependent on their hospitality for that night, I said, I declare, I knew not that I carried this small rapier, which has been in my coat by chance, and not by any design of mine, but lest you think that I mediate any mischief to any under this roof, I give it into your hands, requesting of you to lock it by till tomorrow, or when I shall next want it. The woman seemed rather glad to get hold of it, and taking it from me, she went into a kind of pantry out of my sight, and locked the weapon up, and then the discourse went on. There cannot be such a thing in reality, said I, as the story you were mentioning just now of a man whose name resembles mine. It's likely that you can a wee better about the story than I do, maester, said he. Suppose you do leave the L out of your name, and yet I think Sikoreich and a murderer. Wait hey ten a name we some greater difference in the sound. But the story is just that true that there were twa o the queen's officers here near mare then an hour ago in pursuit o the vagabond. For they gat some intelligence that he had fled this gate, yet they said he had been last seen with black clays on, and they suppose he was clad in black. His ain servant is we them, for the purpose of canning the scoundrel, and they're galloping through the country like madmen. I hope in God they'll get him, and rack his neck for him. I could not say amen to the weaver's prayer, and therefore tried to compose myself as well as I could, and made some religious comment on the causes of the nation's depravity. But suspecting that my potent friend had betrayed my flight and disguise to save his life, I was very uneasy and gave myself up for lost. I said prayers in the family, with the tenor of which the wife was delighted, but the weaver still dissatisfied, and after a supper of the most homely fare, he tried to start an argument with me, 
proving that everything for which I had interceded in my prayer was irrelevant to man's present state. But I, being weary and distressed in mind, shunned the contest and requested a couch whereupon to repose. End of section 23